0: It's been a long time since I've done an event in a bookstore and and been next to this little book that came out around the same time that my daughter, who's now five, was born into the world. And so I'm not really used to reading from it anymore, but I will do a little bit of that. I was thinking of doing a little talking and a little reading and a little answering questions or having conversation with all of you. I thought mostly because Tom and Martin are here, My dear friends from Witness Against Torture, I thought I would start just with some thoughts and reflection from those times that we spend together, and then read a little bit from the book, if that's okay. So hopefully, Martin and Tom have spent a lot of time educating all of you about shining down Guantanamo. I saw some signs a little earlier about all of that, and I feel really privileged to be a part of the Witness Against Torture community, and was part of founding that group back in 2000 four, 2005. And every year we go to Washington and mark January 11th as a day of national shame. We've been doing that since 2007, bringing attention to Guantanamo as a site of indefinite detention, collective punishment, and humiliation for Muslim men. And uh, there are a lot of reasons that this, you know, even coming out of the Catholic resistance community and so focused on nuclear weapons growing up. A lot of reasons that I was sort of drawn to this particular issue group, and I think it had perhaps more to do with the people that I was able to be working with than the issue itself, but, you know, it pulled me in as a very tangible injustice as this piece of the global war on terror that felt manageable, that felt kind of salient, that felt like that I could resist in some way. I was really struck by the arbitrariness of who was targeted and who was singled out. And this idea, the idea that if it could be anyone, then it could be any of us. And then I think the identification with fathers who are taken away from their families spoke really deeply to me personally as somebody who, you know, spent a lot of time separated from my own father. And in the 12 years since we started gathering in, in Washington every January, you know, we've gone through three presidents now, organizing and working under the Bush administration, under the Obama administration, and now under the Trump administration. And each of those has had its own character. You know, there's times in the Obama administration where we felt sort of tentative and like we were harshing on people's mellow, you know. uh, People are so excited about this president who said all the right things. You know, and now, of course, the political tide has turned, as it does. And we've entered a new era of crass brutality and fake news and ignorant bombast, right? Trump has said he wants to see more people at Guantanamo. He isn't squeamish about torture. He isn't, you know, one of those don't want to get their hands dirty kind of people. We've had to of work that in and think that through together in this 12 years of going to Washington things have changed a lot in in my own life I've gotten married I've left New York City and moved to the the wilds of Shoreline Connecticut Eastern Connecticut Eastern Connecticut there's all these Connecticut's and Eastern Connecticut is a small city big problems is what we like to say and moved out of leadership Right, which has been this, this actually wonderful experience um, of, of going from you know, being kind of the, the person doing all the work to the person who just kind of comes and sleeps on the floor with, with Tom and Martin and everybody else. Right? So that has been a really lovely experience. But this community has been, uh, I found myself really wanting to be with people who make me stronger and who make me feel braver and people who remind me of our collective power and our capacity for love and creativity. And in this group, and it's funny to say this, as a Catholic in contest with my church, I have found within Witness Against Torture a new appreciation of the power of ritual, the power of ritual, and the physical and creative expression and public storytelling, which has kind of become a charism for our group. So I just want to share a little story and experience from January of last year as I do kind of Leave my own family and their, you know, inevitable January sicknesses and complaints and get to go off by myself and Mm -hmm. and be with my friends in Washington, D.C. and let my husband handle the vomiting, sick, (laughs) disgusting children. So here we are on January 11th of 2018, gathered near the White House. And There's a rally, and folks are talking from the Center for Constitutional Rights and from the National Religious Campaign Against Torture and from other groups. And I and others of us are faceless and in orange jumpsuits and black hoods, standing very still and quiet and sort of bent over a little bit, their hands behind our backs as the press conference is going and and the people are speaking. And I'm close enough to hear, and so I, I let the facts and the figures and the outrage wash over me. And I, as I'm aware of and trying to kind of not become preoccupied with my own minor discomfort and fatigue. I hadn't eaten in a couple of days. So we had walked two miles. It was quite cold. And I'm trying and struggling to put myself into spiritual proximity, spiritual proximity with a man named Sharkawi al-Hajj, right? He's from Yemen and we're the same age. Uh, he was also born in 1974. And he was arrested by the United States and Pakistani personnel in 2002, in his home country. He was held in solitary confinement for three weeks and then rendered to Jordan, where awful things happened to him. He was beaten, electrocuted, and hidden from the Red Cross. When he was able to come and have access to the prison, uh, but they couldn't see Turkali. And then he was finally transferred to Guantanamo in 2004, after he had confessed, he had signed a written confession to crimes that he could not have committed, right? right. And that uh, this is the work that his poor lawyers have been working on ever since. In 2011, a federal judge found that Sir Karwi had been subjected to... Patent, physical and psychological coercion, which tainted his interrogations and prevented the government from being able to rely on that information right and we know this story kind of is compounded and replicated so many other times at like Guantanamo and so many other times within our criminal injustice system. It should be no surprise to any of you that Sarkarwi is very, very ill and even months ago was on the verge of total body collapse, according to an independent medical assessment that was done there Derek Guantanamo. And so I stood holding on to this suffering, conscious of the, the person next to me, and trying hard to have some discipline and some sort of self-restraint, and to think about his suffering and not my own discomfort, chilliness. After the end of the rally and the press conference, 30 of us in orange jumpsuits lined up and marched towards the White House in single file. One by one, we were handed a cup of tea. And as the names of the, at that time, 41 men were read out, uh, 41 men who uh, remained at Guantanamo, were read out, we took off our hoods, drank the cup of tea, a symbol of hospitality throughout the Middle East, and symbolically became human beings again, drinking the tea. And then set down our cups, and each cup bore the name of one of the men still in Guantanamo. So, Sharkawi al-Haj, Saiful al Talfik Bahani, Abdul Latif, Nasser, and on and on, these names. So unfamiliar to so many of our mouths, you know, kind of became prayer, right? Prayer. Became connection. We invited the White House and the public passing by the media to see these men as, as human beings, to attend to them and their faces. And while I was part of conceiving this thea- theater, I liked the movement of it, I like the inclusivity, I like the the transformation i had no idea that i would be so so moved by it so touched and so devastated so completely devastated by participating in it in the course of it i found myself just crying and crying and crying and not not hiding my tears nor performing sadness right and you kind of mm-hmm. know that i think that space of just kind of letting it letting it be Someone, you know, asked me, a little camera, tourist interaction, well, why are you crying? What is, what's going on here? And I said something to the effect of, you know, I've been working with these men and on behalf of these men for more than a decade. And I'm crying because no matter what I've done, they're still there, and I am still here. And of course, our, our movement, though, has changed over the last decade. It's lost some of its Catholic flavor. It's gained a deeper analysis of Guantanamo sitting at the intersections of Islamophobia and racism and the prison industrial complex and the war machine. And we have tried to witness to the intersection and not just to this relatively small number of individual men there at Guantanamo. And as I said, it's nice to no longer be in charge and to just come and participate, to be just one more person as others youngers and, and some olders stay up late and fret over the details and raise the money and write the thank you cards. And and the work goes on, right? And the work goes on. And I share that mostly because I just really love that story, but I also love this thing. And I, I shared this earlier today at Niagara too, that sometimes we're called by, by the issues and sometimes we're called by the community that the issues sort of Catalyze or galvanize, or people who co-he- cohere, 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 mm-hmm. adhere, cohere around that issue. But that space of being able to cry and act at the same time, of being in a, a circle of prayer and creative witness, a place where your body is moving and interacting, and your hopelessness and heartbreak is able to turn into hope, and where your fear kind of becomes resistance and isn't just this kind of paralyzing agent, but is kind of something that propels you forward, It is a powerful place to be. Uh, and I uh, feel very privileged to to be able to, to be there sometimes and be there with some of you. I thought I'd read a little from this book that uh, Burning Books has here. So this book came out of essays that I was writing for a website called Waging Nonviolence, and they invited me to do what they termed a little insurrections blog, where I was able to sort of write about the family and child rearing and pregnancy and, and all of that, and I really loved doing that. And when they invited me to write the book, I thought I could just smush all the essays into a book, and it was just kind of a magic book. But nobody wants to read a book made up of essays. Nobody wants to buy a book made up of essays that you can get for free on the Internet. And so I had to actually write a book. So, okay, so, enough, enough I, I'm just going to read a little bit of this So this is from the chapter called Family Dad was born in 1923 and turned six years old Two weeks before Black Tuesday in 1929 oh. The youngest of six brothers he watched, his mother welcome the travelers who crowded the roads Looking for work far from their families My dad's own family was poor, but they shared what they had and these early experiences of poverty, of seeing a nation unravel, of experiencing whole communities forced out onto the open road, marked my father and informed his approach to life. My dad's advice in every situation was drawn from his faith, which was a lived, applied, and practical discipline. It was never taken for granted. It was a tool he used again and again to carve hope out of despair, light out of darkness, and community Out of alienation. In October of 1968, six and a half years before I would be born, my dad was on trial, along with eight others, for burning and pouring blood on the paperwork of war, the action that came to be known as the Catonsville Nine. And he would be sentenced to three and a half years in prison. And this is what he told the judge. From those in power, we have met little understanding, much silence much scorn and punishment. We have been accused of arrogance. But what of the fantastic arrogance of our leaders? What of their crimes against the people, the poor and powerless? Still no court will try them. No jail will receive them. They live in righteousness. They will die in honor. And for them we have one message. For those in whose manicured hands the power of the land lies, we say, lead us. Lead us in justice, and there will be no need to break the law. Yeah. Yeah. The, the judge did not clap. Yeah. Again and again throughout his life, in courts all over the country, my father stood resolute and righteous before power. He would accept the consequences of his actions without flinching. And my brother and sister and I watched him walk into prison fearless and full of joy more times than we can count. He was a fearless activist, but he was also a father who made fearsome oatmeal. Which is, which Eric really likes to. <laughs> <laughs> Flavorless hot muck designed to stick to your ribs and when it came to this particular abuse of power my siblings and I played the impassioned activists and he was the heartless and impassive judge but rather than be late for school we ate the oatmeal and pulled our stocking hats low over our ears as instructed and he would watch us. We lived at the top of a little hill. He would watch us for the two blocks to make us make sure that the hats stayed on. And he would yell at us, Put your goddamn hats back on! <laughs> Try telling a man who does not blink at a five-year prison sentence that only geeks wear winter hats. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom is fearless, too. For instance, she's always touching things in museums into science of science prohibiting this. <laughs> Otherwise enjoyable afternoons at the National Gallery or the American Visionary Art Museum have been marred by me hissing at her and pointing at the do not touch signs. <laughs> That's great. Unfortunately, the same person who cuts through a military fence emblazed with no trespassing signs, festooned with barbed wire in order to disarm nuclear weapons is unlikely to be intimidated by do-not-touch signs and, uh, and security guards in ill-fitting uniforms. <laughs> as kids, we watched her joke with Pentagon workers and the police, and when we were at the Pentagon, she would address anyone in un- uniform as Admiral. Good morning, Admiral. Top of the morning, General. Uh, it was good, yeah. File that one away. It, they almost yeah. smiled. They almost smiled uh, in that. Yeah. It didn't mean that they took the dense anti militarist track she was handing out, but sometimes just getting them to smile was more important. She was just one of those people who made things happen and who still makes things happen. Using plans she copied out of a library book, she built loft beds in our room and a play loft in the sandbox, a play loft with a sandbox in our miniature backyard uh, when we were little. The sandbox quickly became the neighborhood cat's favorite spot to poop, but the playscape that she made was awesome, and it helped to anchor us and our neighborhood friends at home at a time when lots of kids were just kind of wandering the streets and so we would um, our backyard kind of became the place to be one night when we were just finishing dinner we had this long skinny dining room table it probably like would take up most of this aisle right because a lot of people lived at our house but she was sort of done with with it for some reason and uh, she just got the electric saw and she buzzed eight inches off the end of the table. <laughs> I guess it was too long. I mean, she, she wanted less people to live there or something. I don't know. You guys are going to be grossed out by this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So it was you know it was planks put together, but they were like space between them, and cockroaches came pouring out of all the ends of the table. And their nests, they nested underneath it. This is what happens when you live in community. Roaches are really happy. <laughs> and so she thought it was so funny, and we, were all, we did a little cockroach dance and killed all the cockroaches on the, on the table, uh, on the floor. Uh, and then I talk about in 1983, she did a plowshares action at Griffiths Air Force Base outside of Syracuse on, um, on Thanksgiving Day in 1983. She's one of seven, and uh, you all probably know Claire Grady, some yes. of you know Uh, Claire and some of her other co-defendants. She spent two years in Alderson, West Virginia, in jail there. My brother and I were eight and nine when, when the action happened, and our sister was two. This was tough in lots and lots of different respects, but the way prison was presented to us kids was kind of incredible. She made it seem like she was on a retreat. She quit smoking. She did yoga. She went for long walks. Uh, she worked on the grounds crew and was able to be outside a lot. And she built lasting friendships, not just with other activists there, but with women throughout the prison system. And all the way, all, all the while, she knew more about our daily activities, our triumphs and our tribulations than many moms do when they're even when they're living under the same roof. And then I read a little bit about our dad getting sick and dying, which, you know, isn't, isn't So cheerful, our uh, dad's last action was plowshares versus depleted uranium uh, late in 1999, right? Mm. A plowshares action uh, that he and three other people did in Maryland about 20, 30 minutes from, from where we lived. And he did his last prison sentence, I think it was 18 months, maybe 22 months. Part of it was in a juvenile facility, which was kind of hilarious, that he was in a juvenile facility outside of Washington, D.C., and then he was moved to a, a prison in Ohio for part of it and then returned to us right before Christmas in 2001. And so that was, that was great. And there was a retreat right after he got out of jail, and everybody was like, oh, yeah, Phil! Welcome to minimum security. Welcome to minimum security. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, nobody's heard that one before. But anyway, he had hip surgery early in the year, and so I had a hip replacement. He healed very slowly and uh, felt lousy for months. And we took him to the doctor, and the verdict came back harsh. Aggressive, stage 4 cancer. The doctor said they could treat it with chemotherapy, but the chances for a full recovery were slight. Dad was up for trying chemo and wanted to give the doctors at Johns Hopkins a chance. But after one round of chemo and it just hit him like a ton of bricks, he said no more. And we refused all future treatment. And he came home. He came home to die. Mom gathered us all in, not just my brother and my sister and I, but the whole community. Hundreds of people came, literally, to take care of him and of us and of one another. They came to help him die and to help us grieve and through all of this my mom made everything happen. She made laughter and tears and raucous memory sharing and meatballs and roses and and torches and an incredible amount of scotch was drank in these couple months. It It was maybe ever so slightly problematic. Friends from far and wide offered alternative cures and advice and great stories of teas and herbs that against all the odds had allowed them or their family members to live cancer-free. But our dad sat us down, uh, just our family, and told us that that he was seeking healing and not a cure and putting his faith in, in God and into us. And he asked us to pray for healing and for our faith to be strong in the months to come. And he asked us to start preparing for life without him. And he was not afraid. And he told us that over and over again, we, I am not afraid. He loved us and he was sad, but he was also ready. And with clear eyes and a lot of compassion, he got down to the hard work of dying with dignity. And in this culture, that is incredibly hard work, isn't it? It's hard work to die with dignity. And the hallmark of the next few months was gratitude. And I would sit and read with him and he would say, thanks, Freeds. And my sister would bring him a drink and he would say, thanks, love. And my brother would say, spend time with him, and he would say, Thanks for giving an old man a lift. And uh, we <laughs> were always trying to do, like, nice things for him. And so we said, Dad, you want ice cream? You want ice cream? We, of course, you know, people who aren't eating much else, you know, still, still, everybody loves ice cream. And he say, Oh, he'd say, Yeah, yeah, ice cream. Uh, okay, that'd be fine. Whoa, whoa, oh, my gosh, what flavor? What flavor would you like? <laughs> Nothing special. You know, just, just your basic ice cream. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're not going to spring for the better, Jerry's. We're going go to go Turkey Hill all the way. So my, my mom and the Jonah House community, the continuous stream of friends and relatives who came to say hello, spend some time, and say goodbye at the same time, they all experienced the same thing. They experience Thanksgiving thanksgiving dad allowed no gesture however small to go unappreciated and and when it when some of the day-to-day care became too much for us we brought in hospice care and and they were amazing but he stayed at home they respected what we were doing loving our dad on his journey to death and letting him die the way he lived surrounded by people surrounded by love and resisting the medical industrial complex he stopped eating, he didn't want to drink, his breath grew labored, and magnified by the baby monitor in his room, his breathing became this off-kilter metronome of our days. We just kind of would listen to this, this rise and fall, and then it wouldn't rise again, we'd all wait, and then it would rise again. And uh, we listened to this, and it was the rhythm by which we planned the funeral, and shared the stories and the memories, and prayed and cried and laughed together. And on December 6, 2002, sometime after dinner, he died. He died. He died at Jonah House. There were more than 30 of us there, friends, family members, community members. Amy Goodman sang the Kaddish. It was was an incredible grace. And each of us wept, and we probed the hole that his absence would leave in our lives. And we stood around him, and we prayed, and, and said goodbye. And there was a lot of gratitude there—gratitude that his long and very painful journey was over. And we all kept uh, saying, "Now we got a powerful advocate in heaven." And the pine box that my brother and friends had made was ready. And it was beautifully painted by uh, a friend, a Jesuit priest named uh, Bill McNichols, who is an iconographer. Painted this beautiful. the symbols on it and we prepared the body and we laid him in a coffin in dry ice so it was all it was all ours and the funeral and uh, the wake and the funeral were at St. Peter Claver which is the the parish that he had served as a priest uh, so many years before and many of the old church ladies who were there to kind of make the coffee and all had been his congregants had been his church when he was a young priest the night after the wake, we gathered around him one last time and nailed the coffin closed. And I remember my uncle Jim, who is my father's oldest living brother, nailing the coffin and driving these nails deep with just two whacks. He'd go bang, 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 and by contrast, my own I was like bang, bang. <laughs> You know, my, my nails, you know, I only got to do like three, but they're just like <laughs> such sorry. You know, it's like, gosh, my dad would be so, okay. <laughs> Not a carpenter, my daughter. <laughs> the next morning was cold and clear and so beautiful. Dad was loaded into the back of a pickup truck. My sister Kate and our sister-in-law Molly and I rode in the truck with him. And people carried signs and banners and we processed a mile or so down the streets to the funeral mass. I don't remember much of the service, but it was a strangely happy occasion, strangely happy. Dad was gone, but he was so present in the room, full of so many people who had loved him. And my sister and I did one of the eulogies, and we kind of read back and forth, and that presence, that palpable kind of connection we felt to so many people who were there, was part of the theme of the eulogy. We said, he's here with us every time a hammer strikes on killing metal, transforming it from a tool of death to a productive, life-giving, life-affirming implement. He's here with us every time a member of the church communicates the central message of the gospel, which is, thou shalt not kill, and acts to oppose killing, rather than giving the church seal of approval to war. He's here wherever joy and irreverent laughter and kindness and hard work are present. And he's here with us every time we reach across color and class lines, embrace each other as brothers and sisters. My sister and I ended by saying thanks, Dad, for the lessons in freedom, inside and outside of presence. Thanks to all of you who struggle toward freedom and who are working to build a just and peaceful world. Our Dad lives on in you. I've only seen my mom cry a few times. You know, she's an Irish woman. But she broke down at my dad's grave and wept and sobbed as he was being lowered into it with the torches and the snow and the music, which evoked some sort of timeless Viking ritual. She broke down, and then she began to remake herself for the last, it's been 17 years, it's, uh, 18. She's continued to live in community, to labor, to pray doing organizing and resistance, studying the Bible. She devotes time and energy to her prodigious gift for art. After my dad died, she got donkeys and goats and llamas. um, and Guinea fowl, um, which are hilarious, and actually are no more. That was kind of a, a phase. And six incredible youngsters now call her grandma, showering her with sloppy kisses and clumsy drawings and pawing at her with sticky hands. And she wears her grandmother's for peace sweatshirt like a banner, fiercely and with great love. So that's a little little flavor of the book. But this, But the story continues because my mom, who's now 79, is not wearing her Grandmother's for Peace sweatshirt right now. She's um, wearing a Navy prison uniform, or jail uniform, a county detention facility uniform. Mm -hmm. It's navy blue, I hear. And she and others did a plowshares action on April 4th of last year, 2018, on the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So I'll just kind of finish by sharing a little bit about the action and sort of where she is now and if you're interested in what you can do to be helpful and supportive. So she and six others entered the Kings Bay Naval Station in Georgia, in St. Mary's, Georgia, and went to three different sites on the base. And she was able to be at the nuclear weapons storage bunkers. Uh, so she was right there in the, in the middle. I, I found out quite recently that it was the place on the base where lethal force is okay. So she was in a free fire zone where if she had been shot by a security personnel, it would have been totally justified and and fine uh, from their perspective. They hung banners, used crime scene tape, and uh, hammered, and then hung signs uh, that read, the ultimate logic of racism is genocide, the ultimate logic of trident is omnicide. And so she has been in county jails, uh, two different ones now, for the last year and week, right? Uh, April 4th, April 5th, by the time they were finally arrested. Two of her co-defendants are also in the Camden County Detention Facility. Father Steve Kelly, who celebrated his 70th birthday in jail last fall, and our friend Mark Colville, who's a Catholic worker from New Haven, Connecticut, and co-defendant of some of you at Hancock. And then the others, Martha Hennessy, Claire Grady, Patrick O'Neill, and Carmen Trott, all Catholic workers from the East Coast. I guess Ithaca doesn't count as the East Coast, does it? Yes. It oh, does it? Oh, yeah. oh, it's all. It's all, the, all, it's, it's yeah, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Geography has never been my, like. sorry, a strong point. What, what was the base at St. Mary's, Georgia? It's called the King's Bay, King's Bay. Like you know, a king with a crown. Kings Bay, uh, naval station. Yeah, uh, it's the home to six Trident submarines, the the largest piece of the American fleet. There are others in, uh, well, the Bremerton, uh, Washington, and maybe near San Diego, and then in, in my hometown of uh, New London, Connecticut, Broughton, Connecticut, also has a submarine base, and we have subs going out of there as well. But the most are home based in Kings Bay, Georgia. And we can talk a little bit more about their action in the q and A. I I thought I had, like, one more little thing to say about that. I do have, uh, Vicky made me these great handouts, and I'm going to hand them out now. Mm-hmm. You might think, well, gosh, you know, they've been a long time in jail. They must have had their court date and everything. They don't have a trial date yet. They have been sort of at the mercies of the slow wheel of justice uh, since last April, in part because you know that's how it is and in part because they've decided to mount a sort of novel legal defense the necessity defense is kind of back in play in some actions right the the valve turners and, and others have, have recently won in courts using a, a necessity defense but because of precedent that avenue isn't really open to plowshares activists they lost and and so that's the precedent and prosecutor just has to say, blah, 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 v blah, 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 year. And the judge is like, all right, well, we don't have to talk about that. So it's very hard for plowshares activists to talk about nuclear weapons, to talk about the amount of money spent on nuclear weapons, to talk about first strike capabilities and the triad and bring any of the information that they know about the threat posed by these weapons. They can't really talk about that. They can't really talk about their own conscience. There are all these words that they can't say. Individual words are, are you know, verboten, and uh, can cause the jury to get sent out, and you know, all, all of this stuff can happen. So, in, an effort to, to try and, you know, well, we to be because we are human and creative, they're using the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA which is one of the best acronyms out there. Rifra, which is a relatively new piece of law used in civil cases with some effect. The Hobby Lobby was able to keep its employees from getting access to birth control, and and it was used by the homophobic cake baker. And uh, it's been used, I think, in a good way to allow for Native American and indigenous spiritual practices in prisons in, in some places. So anyway, they're seeking to use this law in their criminal case, and it's just taking a very long time. So motions were submitted before Christmas, and we're sort of right at the end of the period of time. Those motions have been deliberated and looked at by everybody, and now it's just about time for the government's response to those. And so there's, there's a possibility that a trial could happen in July, or like July to November. It's sort of the window that I was given recently. So... You know, we sort of live in this precarity. We live in this kind of unknowing. You know, Liz has three children and six grandchildren. Mark has four children, all young adults. Claire has two young adult daughters. Patrick O'Neill is a father of ten. And a grandfather now twice. I think his youngest is a like a medium teenager, maybe like a 15-year-old. And then Martha Hennessy is a mother of five and, and grandmother, I think, of six. And so there's all these families. And then Steve Kelly is the father of us all, right, as a Jesuit <laughs> priest. And Carmen Trata is the, the lone single person. So we all sort of, you know, all supporting and struggling with communication. Leslie was talking at the beginning about writing to political prisoners and how how difficult that is, and how many rules you have to follow uh, for these guys, and and I don't know how widespread this is, but you have to write letters on little postcards like this that you buy at the post office, you have to address them exactly correctly, and then no pictures, no purple glittery ink, no nothing, just straight printing your letter, they send it back for any minor mistake. My nephew's postcard was sent back because he just wrote his first name, Love Jonah, right? He didn't put his full name. So there's all this kind of punitive stuff that, that happens just because they, they can. So a- anyway, I share all of that with you, and they have a really incredible support team. And there's also, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to your questions and conversation, There's a petition to get the charges dropped and to release them all. I should say that the other four are on ankle monitors and on bond, and so each of them, while they're not eating, like, cream turkey every night or, you know, uh, canned peas are, um, you know, kind of have their own mini prison around their ankles and have to deal with a lot. There's a lot that, that goes into that in terms of how their freedom of movement and freedom of action is sort of curtailed. So the petition is on the Kings Bay Plushers website, which is on the little handout. Desmond Tutu has signed it, Noam Chomsky, so it will be no problem for all of you to sign it. Um, it basically says, drop the charges and let them go. Come on already, really. That's, that's what it says. It, it says it in like 750 words instead of just that. But, um, so, but with that, I'll stop talking at least until you have questions that you want me to answer. Can you, two remember any of the specific words they're not allowed to say in court? So the prosecutor will submit an in limine motion, and they'll just list. Um, oh, it's not out yet. No, I mean, and everyone is different, right? And so every Fauscher's case since whenever. In every case. And so it would be like, can't say the word conscience, can't say what? the word Isaiah, can't say the word Micah, can't say... Justice. Nuclear weapons, and then it's just like a list of sorts. It has gotten so bad in some of these cases where, and this was so striking in—I want to say it was the Transform Now plowshares, which was up in Maine—that my dad and Steve Kelly, Mark Koval was also in that action, Susan Crane, and I think Liz Walls. They just—they just turned their back. And they just refused to participate in the trial anymore, oh, yeah. and were held in contempt of court. The jury was sent out. The courtroom erupted, you know, and we were all dragged out. They're spraying Febreze, you know, behind us. And um, the trial was just kind of over because it was such a farce. It was can a kangaroo trial. You can't say, farce? You, can say- <laughs> <laughs> you can't say fart, but can say farce. <laughs> <laughs> You said travesty. I just had a question. So when you, when you, you said those slogans, they're not slogans, but uh, what leads to genocide and what leads to omnicide? You had, you had them so racism. good. Right. I mean, it's racism and genocide and trident and omnicide. The ultimate logic of racism is genocide. The ultimate logic of Trident is omnicide. My question is, what gives you the most courage to face what you're facing as a family? Well, I, I guess a lot of experience with it throughout my life, so that's one. I think having a, a brother and a sister, this core, and feeling connected to these other families. And then recognizing that even in jail, Liz McAllister and Mark Colville and Steve Kelly bring incredible privilege with them. And that most of the two million people who are incarcerated in our country don't have people writing them every day, don't have people lining up to fill their commissary, don't have a backlog of books. They can have four books at a time. And so there's just these Amazon stacks. I mean, it it got to the point when all seven of them were in there that they were just kind of handing postcards around the cell block or, you know, around the common room because there were so many and it was embarrassing that nobody else was getting a postcard a week. Being incarcerated is incredibly expensive and um, every phone call is almost $4 and they just have an abundance. So, you know, my mom sort of focuses on that a lot and kind of just takes it day by day, tries to be present tries to be generous tries to connect and so so I find that incredibly inspiring and I you know I'm very impatient that this arrival oh, isn't happening yet and this' is gonna mess up my summer you know and, and stuff like that and she's just steady Eddie you know one day at a time and Mark is like that too and Steve is like that too and and I imagine the the ripples of that kind of well, that kind of calm and presence uh, you know, going through that heartless, money-making, awful place, you know, they don't serve them lunch on the weekend, but the commissary is open, and so, you know, people are spending all this money, right? Two dollar bags of chips that we would be able to buy for 50 cents, or, you know, like, it's just all, the, the economy of it is just so gross, you know? And they're poor people, too, though. And they're all there because they're poor, right? Because they can't post-bond, right? Right. And Georgia is not a state that's doing away with the bond and bail system as some other states are starting to do. And so I know my mom's been, you know, hitting the commissary hard. They have these picnics every Saturday and Sunday where she and perhaps hopefully a couple others share commissary around the table. They play Scrabble. Somebody sent her the list of, you know, it's like, one X and you know oh, and everything is scored this way. Uh, and So they uh, made uh, a paper uh, Scrabble board oh, and, wow. <laughs> and they they play this all the time. So Peter Demont will be dead ten years. He died in February, so he's um, he's past ten years now. And yeah, we grew up with Peter as right. sort of a surrogate father, of a second father. He and Ellen were part of the community mm. when our mom was in jail, and uh, mm. we just kind of glommed right onto them when they were young parents of Marie. And so, this reminds me to do a plug for the Peter Dumont Peace Trot. Yes, um, oh, yeah. 5K 1K, yeah. 5K 1K, Father's Day down in Ithaca. For those of you who haven't been there, it's, it's just a real great experience. And, um, Ithaca is gorgeous. It's, it's, I hear it's gorgeous. Um, but we've been wrestled to seriously connect to what you said it it was an incredibly beautiful funeral and I think since my dad died and we had that incredible experience of just being in possession of each piece of that journey all of us have felt very empowered by that and I think the Ithaca community was connected to that power too you know they were all present and very much a part of midwifing my dad in his last journey so there are there are real connections to that and we couldn't quite do the same thing for my uncle because of jesuits uh, damn jesuits no but um uh, we tried to kind of connect to that same power from my uncle dan's funeral my cousins connected to that a lot around walking my uncle jerry through his last months and days and so our ancestors knew how to do this and, and we were kind of having to Take it back, and, and there's lots of resources um, out there for that. Um, would you be comfortable talking about your Catholicism now? Mm. And how you are relating to it? Yeah, in the book, I describe myself as a Catholic in waiting, and that that kind of seems apt. You know, like we were we were raised very much outside of the traditional church. Our parents have been excommunicated from marrying, and then in a couple of pretty public incidences my father was refused communion not that he needed much more souring but that kind of made it so he really just didn't want to be in churches and so we grew up with a house church we had a a Sunday morning service in the Mm -hmm. front room and Mm -hmm. it was very lay and different people took responsibility for the reflection and then for the Eucharist it was very informal and we were as kids we could skip the reflection part and just come for the Eucharist and the kind of prayers afterwards. And I think like reruns of All in the Family were on at that time during the, Uh you know, so we had this black and white TV that we would sneak out of a like (laughs) cupboard and plug in and like sit right next to it and like watch. But so, and then at a certain point we were invited to be part of the reflection too, and so we couldn't watch TV anymore. And we had a Bible study mostly with my dad every Wednesday night. And so Instead of reading like Oliver Twist or Prince Caspian or like whatever we were reading at the time as a family, you know, we had this Bible study and we could lay on the bed when he was reading just stories to us. But for Bible study, we had to sit up and you know kind of read. And you know, he would get very much into his school teacher kind of mode. But it was very well. It kind of is my biblical education, right? Like everything I know about the Bible is basically from those. Schoolings and those really discussions where he invited us to see ourselves in the gospel stories and to rephrase Jesus' words or the words of the disciples in our own words. And when I got older, I, I realized this is sort of popular education. This is what like Ernesto Cardinal was doing, yeah. in Solitaname in Nicaragua, and that he was doing something very, he wasn't just kind of making it up, right? Like he was really teaching us. We were invited to be confirmed, and all three of us were confirmed as adults because we, we didn't go to church, we didn't go to Sunday school. None of us really kind of got into the Catholic Church. It occurred to me that it would be useful and good to kind of become part of a Catholic community, but every time I tried, I was just kind of like, "All right, this is so boring." So boring. And I would I go to like the Spanish mass because at least that was you know, um, I was like you know, kind of there were other people there, you know, and um, and the music was good, but I never made like a real habit of it. And we now, my husband's an atheist. And we have found a Unitarian Universalist community that really works for us. And on Sunday mornings when we're like, let's not go to church today. Let's not. Let's, let's just hang out. Our kids are like, what? We're going to church? Come on. Let's go. And uh, it's like a 15-minute walk for us. And we just they kind of walk downtown and, and to church. And they kind of get us moving when we don't want to go they're like we're gonna tell (laughs) like you can't tell it's it's you you they don't (laughs) care Nobody's gonna get in trouble but i have you know um i guess when i lived i lived at the catholic worker in new york city for about a year in 2009 2010 and found going to liturgy there um bible study and then nightly vespers which was kind of the Catholicism that my mother grew up with, the sort of very you know like the antiphone and the you know and this and the back and forth like i I really loved doing that in this kind of dirty cracked linoleum you know <laughs> basement dining room at, at Mary house, and I found such resonance and such beauty there, and it really helped you know people come to the door and they need things, and really they just need to be like kind of seen as a human being and mm-hmm. and remembered and so it was i found it so useful to be able to say well i will pray for you and to really know that like that night at seven o'clock or 705 you know i would have an opportunity to say their name in my little circle and so i found that incredibly meaningful and the one thing that i really miss is that intentionality and that i will i will pray for you you used don't do that you know we like candles for each other <laughs> try and find the meaning in these newer rituals? Do you know if Dorothy Day went to church? Was, yeah. was she, she was a she was a daily daily oh, okay. she was a daily mass lady. Yeah, yeah she was. Yeah, oh. or she'd go on Saturday nights. Lots of times, you know, you go twice on Saturday. You don't have to go on Sunday. Oh, good. <laughs> so, so, actually, I have two very different questions. Bring it. Bring um, it. One it, one it, relates to the. Um, The question I asked before. So, sort of as a corollary, being raised by activist parents, how is it that you have the activist roots? How is it that it didn't, you know, maybe push you in the other direction Mm. as it might have, like enough is enough with that? Mm. And also, how do you keep balance in your own life with how much to do and how much to not do Mm. and that kind of thing? Mm. you know you're doing too much when liz McAllister tells you to like take it easy so, <laughs> she's like you're doing a lot i'm like oh my god yeah that's my mother yeah yeah your first question you know like that has been something we've gotten asked a lot and my brother and sister both align themselves pretty closely my brother's a catholic worker in michigan and And my sister is a physical therapist and just lives with her partner, but is really connected to lots of movements. You know, we never kind of had like a, this is stupid, we're going off and becoming day traders or, um, (laughs) you know, Wall Street executives or anything. You know, my brother really loved cars, and I really loved clothes, Mm -hmm. and my sister loved the um, magic, a gathering, you know, the card game. So we all kind of had our thing that kind of was firmly outside of the focus of our community and mm-hmm. the source of constant discussion and drama in our household I guess the thing that I've come to is that our parents didn't lie to us mm-hmm. and I think this is where well in, in my observation is where a lot of rebellion comes from it's that moment where you're sort of a, a starting to pay attention to your parents in a different way and kind of take their measure and I think often, it's that moment where you're like, oh, my God, they're not happy. Or, oh, they're not fulfilled. They're pretending that this is all working. And, oh, my gosh, it's really not. It's not working. This whole, I'm supposed to do this and do that, and then society gives me this. Like, that's not working. And they're lying to me. And I think the genesis of so much of what we label as, as rebellion is that moment of, oh, if I can't trust them, who, who am I going to trust? Or they've been protecting me right? They've been protecting me from this whole world where, you know, there is no cause and effect and there is no action and consequence that where there is, where things are just random and violent and messed up. And I've been living in this bubble and bubble is kind of chafing my shoulders now, but I got, I got no skills to do anything else. And so we were not protected. We're not told that everything was rosy when it wasn't. We were really educated in imperialism and racism and and all of these things from before we knew what those words meant we were had object lessons in them and they weren't sort of like you know in the movies or something they were right outside of our door they were in our living room there was also no point where we were like oh our parents are just pretending to love each other they're just pretending to be happy they're just pretending anything they were so genuine and so when you can be happy make no money and own nothing and go to jail and eat garbage, which is you know what we ate, dumpster dive garbage and wear kind of third hand cast offs and if you can be happy like that there's gotta be something there, right? And so that was really our there's you know, there's something there. And and I guess and this is the last thing I'll say, it was attracting all these other people. People from the kind of homes that on some level we wish we lived in were coming to us. You know? People from very wealthy upbringings and good solid straight Joe kind of America people were dropping out and coming to live with us and kind of coming to us. And we so we saw the attraction that other people had to it. And then those people became sort of central to our lives and part of, you know, you know, our parents were quite old. You know my father had me when I, he was fifty, and so it was great to have this post depression view of the world from this intermediate generation, you know people who were born in the in the sixties or the fifties instead of the thirties and forties, and so we were so happy to have all these other adults and they they helped us see the value of what our parents had created. And so that was incredibly valuable. It wasn't just our parents being kind of, ooh you know, out there. It was them attracting all of these people. And, and we still feel the ripples of all of that today. We still are, feel connected to all these people who were attracted. And even if they didn't end up living there forever, for even for that long, you know, they're my kids' aunts and uncles. They're a, a part of our lives in, in a way that my some of my blood relatives just, you know, they just really aren't. Oh, so the balance thing, right? So I have three kids. They're five and six and 12. My stepdaughter, Rosina, lives with us half time and with her mom and stepdad the other half of the time. You know, we're, we're war tax resistors. We, you know, don't make much money. I, I, don't, I don't work that many hours. Uh, we try and, between the two of us, work about 40 hours a week and so we try and spend a lot of time together and time as a family. We bring our kids to lots of lots of things. They would you know be here tonight if this was close and I hadn't Mm -hmm. you know come on an airplane and Mm -hmm. they move in all these different spaces. And I do say no a lot and I, I guess as I've gotten older you know this idea that every no is a yes to something else has kind of become more you know more resonant that I don't have to say yes to everything and Things continue to happen even if I'm not there, which is lovely and empowering. It's never going to be just one person's action or one person's statement or one person's infiltration and steady kind of groundswell, right? It takes a little bit of that and a lot more from so many more than just I. And so... It's like a critical mass. Critical mass, it's, it's the how we live our lives and, and how we propose relationships. It's how we, our neighbors, it's how we're citizens is how we're family and all of that and there's there's moments for big action there's moments for disruption there's moments for provocation there's moments for i was going to say accommodation but but more of like kind of working within systems you know and there's moments just to be present there's moments to be out you know like there's all of these moments and there's all of us and so we can all have one of those hats uh, and be wearing it at any one time and we can toss them around. And I think if we think about each action as the action, then it becomes sort of precious and we allow the, the perfect or the good to be the enemy of the perfect. You know what I mean? Like we, what, what is it? The good to be the enemy. of the Yeah. So we enter into some of this stuff with humility and with like, well, this is one contribution. It might all stack up. All these contributions might stack up to be something kind of sea-changing, and it might not. And one of the interesting things about looking at all of these Plowshares actions, and there have been a hundred of them, is that, you know, some of them have been front-page news. Sister Megan, Greg Borchi, Mike Wally. I do like, cover the Washington Post. There's a book written about these guys. It really was... Same exact action as every single one in, in its basic elements, but there's something about the moment and their personalities and the, their target, you know, that just kind of, just kind of all work together. And, and then they're, they're genuine, You're just something about the three of them, you know. And so, and you know, another action happens, and a couple people are kind of take note of it, and local news story. Jail sentence, no dust-up, no celebrities in the courtroom, no big-name press, no, no nothing. It's the same action, right? And so if you go in hoping that you're going to be on the cover of the Washington Post, well, it's probably like, not going to happen. Um, or the, the New Yorker's going to kind of find something meaningful there. And, but they all kind of they all unfold differently, and they're all sort of all their own contribution.